Uh, this morning we're finishing up our last week in our fully equipped All You Need to Do to Do Your Best Work This Year series. We're starting a new series next week. Uh, I'm excited about that one and you'll have to come next week if you want to find out what it is. But um, we are uh, this week finishing up on fully equipped All You Need to Do to Do Your Best Work This Year. And as we do, let me start off with a question and the question is this. How many of you parents have uh, help your children do their homework? Or have, if your children are grown. How many of you parents have or do currently help their children do your homework? Okay. All right. Yeah. How many of you have tried to help your children do your homework and failed at it? Oh, let's be honest at it. Okay. Yeah. This, uh, here, here's the reality for me. When I, my kids became school age and started to, you know, go to school, I thought, you know, hey, no problem. You know, I don't know about high school but at least through middle school, right, I'm going to be, look, you know, I wasn't the greatest student. I wasn't on a roll like my wife was and all that. But, but I did enough that I felt like I was smarter than a fifth grader. Um, and I could, like, you know, help them along and, you know, do some, and it was going along fine for a while there. I mean, I looked like a genius for a while there. I'm, you know, I come, you know, what's this word? I'm like, ah, oh, that's cat. And uh, feel, you know, you feel pretty good about it, right? Until, I don't know if it was, it was like third or fourth grade maybe, um, that my son brought his math homework to me at one point. And like elementary school math, right? Okay, I, look, there's plus signs, minus, I recognize all this. I've seen this before. I know what we're doing here. And so he brings it to me, brings a problem to me, and he's like, you know, I, I, I need help with this. And I'm like, no problem. You know, look at the problem, and I'm like, okay, here's how you do it. Take out a sheet of paper, and, uh, you know, do the problem, work the problem, get the answer, and you're like, that's, there you go. There's your answer, your problem, there's how you do it. And he looks at it, and he goes, oh, that's not how we're supposed to do it. And I'm like, what do you mean that's not how we're supposed to? Oh, we can't do it that way. We have to do this in our head, and we can't write this down, and I, and I don't even know what that carry the one thing is. I'm like, you have to carry the one. How can you not carry the one? And they're like, oh, we don't carry. And I'm like, I don't even know what you're... So I learned I'm not smarter than a fifth grader. And, uh, and so I, I was like, well, I can't help you then because this is the answer to the problem and this is how you get there and I don't know what you're talking about. And so now my wife helps my son with his homework, <clears throat> which is the truth of the matter, um, which is wise on his part. But here's the thing. Here's, the, here's where I bring that up. Because there are times when in life we have a problem and we have a picture of the future of where we're supposed to get to. But we lack a process in the middle to get from one point to the other. All right? And, and sometimes this happens, you know, this time of year we're talking about fully equipped for all the work you want to do. Sometimes this happens when we're setting goals for things, right? Tonight, if you want to go to our Belmont campus, Dave Stubblebine is doing a goal-setting talk at 5 o'clock there. I'll be there trying to learn how to set and keep goals. But here's, here's the thing about goals. Oftentimes, we make promises on the goal-setting side. We have a picture of what it'll look like when we get the goal and keep the goal. But if you're like me, the main problem is the process in the middle. <clears throat> that how we're going to get from the promise to the picture. Like we can make all kinds of goals. We can make financial goals. Or we're going to make this money. We're going to save this money. We're going to pay off this debt. We make work goals. We make family goals. Uh, we make spiritual goals. I'm going to read the Bible. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do all these things for my family. And we have a great, we're great at making promises. 
We're great at seeing the picture. Oh, isn't that going to be great? When we got this bill paid off, we got the car paid off, we got this debt paid off, I get that extra education. Isn't that we're great at seeing the picture, but we are often not great at figuring out the process to get us from the promise to the picture. And I want to talk a little bit about that this morning in relation to the work that God has given to us. Because when it comes to the work of God, he has given us a promise and he has given us a picture and he's also given us a process that we sometimes meet. And I want to, we sometimes miss. And I want to look at that this morning. I want to look at when it comes to the work of God, what is the promise, what is the picture, and what is the process. Uh, when we're talking about the work of God and we talk about the promise, the promise actually comes very early on in Scripture. In fact, if you have your Bible or if you don't have one, you can pick one up from one of the chairs around you, either under your chair or in front or behind you. And you can turn to the very first book of the Bible, Genesis. In the very first book of the Bible, which is Genesis, Genesis chapter 12, we have given here a promise of God. So here's what happens in the very beginning, in the previous chapters of Genesis, uh, God creates, God says it's good, he, he makes all things and then he creates humans and they come on the scene and things get messed up and go downhill pretty quickly. Sin enters in, humans enters in and God's world gets messed up. And then he steps in in Genesis chapter 12 and he tells a man named Abram, he's got a plan. That God says, I've got a plan and here's where I'm going. And he shares with him a promise. And this is the promise he gives. He says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great. So that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, and here's the promise, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so God says to Abram, and this is over 5,000 years ago, he says to this man named Abram, he says, all the families, I'm going to use you, Abram, your wife, Sarah, both of you who don't have any kids right now, but I'm going to use you and I'm giving you this promise that my plan is that all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. Pretty amazing promise. Now I want you to take your Bible, go to the very end of it. Go to the last book in your Bible, the book of Revelation. And in the very last book of your Bible, in Revelation, and what Revelation is, is very literally what the book is named as. It's a revelation. God has revealed to a man named John what the future of when the end of this world comes about, what it looks like, and what the world after this world looks like. And he gives a revelation to a man named John. He reveals it to him and he says, this is what's coming. And in Revelation chapter 5, we see beings around the throne in heaven. And this is what's said. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. Talking about Jesus. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Now what we have in Revelation is the picture. So the promise was all the families of the earth will be blessed. The picture is 
When it gets to heaven and the end of this world, roll, this world rolled up and God says enough and I'm recreating new heaven and new earth and around that place there will be people from every tribe, every nation, every people group around that throne worshiping. So we have the promise and we have the picture and in the middle the question is what is the process? Because if I'm Abraham 5,000 years ago uh, and I'm a man out in the desert, I would think this seems pretty overwhelming. All the families of the earth, we don't even have any kids. And he's like 90 when God's talking. All the families of the earth are gonna be blessed through me, this man living in the desert. And here's a man of faith, but I gotta imagine that had to be difficult. Even if he trusted God, and I believe he did, that it was going to happen, he must have had question about I don't know how it's going to happen. Now in our day and age, maybe we, with all the technological advances that we've been able to have, can say, well, you know, we could see how that could happen. You know, we could see the process unfolding a little bit. I mean, as technology has advanced, this becomes more and more possible, right? It used to be that the only way to communicate a message to a lot of people was to stand in front of a lot of people and tell them the message, right? And Jesus did this. He talked to large crowds and shared the message. And this has happened throughout history. Uh, one of the larger gatherings in our area, back in 1740, a man named George Whitfield uh, was probably one of the greatest evangelists our country has, has ever known, uh, maybe the world has ever known. George Whitfield, in 1740, stood on Boston Common and preached to, it's estimated to be 25,000 people on Boston Common in 1740. Now that's remarkable for a couple reasons. Because one, you might say, well, hey, more people than that, you know, are in Fenway Park on a sold out night. So it's not that, but, but that's remarkable for a couple reasons. One is no amplification, no microphone, no speakers, and speaking to 25,000 people on Boston Common. Two is 25,000 people is more than the entire population of the Boston proper at that time. And George Whitfield preached to these people. And it's happened throughout, you know, it's gone on. People preach to large crowds. Billy Graham, who probably shared the gospel with, you know, more people than anybody else, uh, is estimated that through his crusades and television and satellite, 200 million people heard the message of the gospel. So as technology is gone, we see, well, maybe this is possible because from, you know, speaking, then it went to the printing press, uh, right? It wasn't just speaking to large crowds that Jesus did, but then the printing press comes along in like the 1500s. Gutenberg comes along, starts printing up Bibles. Not long after that, literature's printed up. We can distribute this message places we couldn't before. Then the radio comes along, right? And then all of a sudden you can build antennas. You don't have to be standing in front of people for them to get the message anymore. You could be standing miles away and people can get the message. They, we still use this today. Uh, South Korea, there's Christians in South Korea that build radio antennas to broadcast the Christian message into North Korea. Uh, they use radio to do that. North Korea builds towers to keep the message out of North Korea and try to block the radio signals that are coming in. And there's all kinds of things, but radio expanded that. And then television comes along and satellite, right? And then all of a sudden, it didn't matter how big your radio antenna was because you could beam it up to a satellite and you could send a message from the Bible Belt of America to the 
the jungles of Africa, anywhere you wanted by satellite, you could bring that message all around the world. And then comes along the internet. I mean, satellite, you still needed a lot of technology. You still needed a television studio and all that. But the internet comes along. You could be sitting in your bathrobe at home in your living room and taking the gospel to another country in the world. But still, you know, people, not everyone has the internet. Not everybody can afford that. So then comes along phones, right? And now you have your mobile device that is prolific throughout the world that there's shepherds in rural communities throughout the world that they don't have any other piece of technology, but they got one of these that they can, they do their banking on, they do, they, you know, they can transfer money on, they can get the internet on, and all of a sudden, you get the message into people's hands in all parts of the world. They can have the entire Bible on their phone. And then you've got, now you've got virtual reality coming. And now virtual reality, you don't need just take the message to people. You could take people back to the message. And they could stand there and watch Jesus preach and, and hear the message there and through virtual reality and all kinds of things. And then you have whatever's coming next. I don't know what's coming next, but something's coming next. And we can look at all these and say, oh, we can, we can connect the dots here. We, we can see the, the promise of all people being blessed and the picture of all people being present. And we could see that, oh, the process, it can happen. It can happen. But here's the thing. I think the question still exists of how that happens because here's the thing. All those things, all those mass technologies, all those things are really great or have been used to help people come to the place of decision. But it's not decisions that actually bring this picture into reality. I would argue to you that it is not decisions that actually populate the picture of all people being present. The process that Jesus gave is in Matthew chapter 28. And what he did not say is go into all the world and make decisions. Or go into all the world and get people to make a decision to follow me. What he did say was go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. This is the process that Jesus gave to us. The way the picture becomes a reality is not through decisions. People make decisions all the time that don't necessarily affect eternity. But through a process of discipleship. And the reason this makes a difference, Billy, like even the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association knows this makes a difference because they will tell you not just how many people have responded, but not just how many people have committed. They will track how many people then got connected with a church, continued to grow, continued to walk, and continued to be, become a disciple because they know as well as anybody that a lot of people make decisions but don't necessarily become disciples. So I want to talk to you this morning, give you about this discipleship because it is the ultimate work God has called us to. And it's important. 
And it's a process that God has called you to. And I think there are three ingredients to making a disciple. If Jesus has called us to make disciples, how do we make disciples? I was reading a book, we were reading a book as a staff recently called Design to Lead by Eric Geiger and Kevin Peck. And in this book, it talks about three ingredients for Christian leadership. And I think they're the same three ingredients for Christian discipleship. And so I want to share with you this morning um, what they share in their book is the three ingredients for Christian discipleship. And here's why. Because you may not be as much of a disciple as you think you are. Or you may have had the privilege of someone coming alongside someone who made a decision to follow Jesus, but they never, or they, you haven't yet brought them to the point of being a disciple of Jesus. And so I want to talk to you, what are the three ingredients in making a disciple? What are the three things that go into making a disciple? So I want to share with that, you that real quickly this morning. So the first part of becoming a disciple is make, you make that decision. It is. That decision is important. That decision is important. And so in, Mar in Luke chapter 5, and I want to look at some scriptures in Luke this morning with you. In Luke chapter 5, we have this. And when they had brought their boats to land, they is who we will later know as the disciples of Jesus. These men, got, Jesus called to them. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. These are the disciples of Jesus. They left everything and followed him. That's Luke chapter 5, verse 11. Let me tell you what Luke chapter 5, verse 12 does not say. Luke chapter 5, verse 12 does not say have Jesus saying, you guys want to follow me? That is excellent, awesome, great decision. I applaud what you guys have done. You guys have made the best decision of your life. This is great, fantastic. Uh, I've got to go and try and get some other people to make decisions. So good luck with what you've done. We'll see you at the rapture in heaven. And, and you know, I'm going to go find some other people to make decisions. I mean, you know that's not what happens, right? You know that's not what Jesus does. He doesn't do that. What happens is over the next series of chapters and over the next part of Jesus' ministry, what happens is they said they left everything to follow him and they literally followed him. We use this in such a figurative way sometimes. Oh, I follow Jesus. No, they followed him. Let's go. You're going that way. We're going that way. We're going to follow you. And what happened? What happened was they got the first ingredient of discipleship and the first ingredient of discipleship is to give knowledge. And that's the first ingredient of discipleship is to give knowledge, to gain understanding. And Jesus says, come with me guys. Come with me, here we go. We're gonna go, I'm gonna teach, you're gonna watch. You're gonna listen. I'm, I'm gonna teach this crowd and you're gonna watch. I'm gonna heal some people and you're gonna observe it. I'm going to cast out some demons and you're going to watch. I'm going to feed 5,000 people and I'm going to feed thousands of people and you're going to watch and you're going to see the provision. He's going to heal. He's going to raise people from the dead. And all the while, these disciples come alongside him and they watch and they listen and they gain knowledge. And you think, well, of course, why are you even spending time on this? We all know that's what happens. If we all know that's what happens, then why don't we do the same thing when someone decides to follow Jesus all the time? Why is it that sometimes we, when we are in a place where someone decides to follow Jesus, that we will put all the effort into getting someone to decide to follow Jesus? We, are, we love them. We're praying for them that they'll come to Jesus. 
We are giving them scriptures, we're texting them scriptures, we're, we're answering their questions, we're sharing our story with them, we're sharing the Jesus story with them, we're giving videos and DVDs, and, and we're, trying, we're doing anything we can. We're inviting the church, we're inviting them to this and that, and then finally they come to church, and then finally they come and they say, you know what, you're right. I do want to follow this Jesus. And we say, that is awesome. That's fantastic. I've been waiting. You have no idea how happy that makes me. That's fantastic. I can't wait. I'll see you next Sunday in church. I got to go find some other people to make decisions. That's sometimes what we end up doing. Jesus is the one who said, used the verbiage that uh, following him is being born again. When you decide to follow him, it's like a second birth. Why is it that we as Christians will sometimes leave people on the delivery table and hope that they figure out how to live for Christ or hope that someone else comes along and teaches them how to live for Christ? It just doesn't work that way. Jesus didn't operate that way. He didn't get a decision from these guys to follow and then move on to the next people to try and get decisions from. He got a decision from these people to follow and he took responsibility for them and said, okay, now watch. Now grow. Now learn. And the, re, the way you impart knowledge is by uh, watching observe, through teaching and observation. And that's what they did. Right up until Luke chapter 9 where we come against the second ingredient for making disciples. The second ingredient for making disciples comes when Jesus takes these guys who have been watching and observing and, and, and seeing what he did for, for, uh, for a significant amount of time. And then he comes to Luke chapter 9, verse 1, and Jesus says, and he called the 12 together, these are those men that left everything to follow him, and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, nor money, do not have two tunics, and whatever house you enter, stay there, from, and from there depart. And, whenever, and wherever they do not receive you, when you leave the town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. The second ingredient to making a disciple is giving experiences. See, disciples aren't made strictly through knowledge and information. And I think in the church at times, we forget this. And we think all people need is knowledge. You know, just learn, 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 learn. Listen to this sermon, listen to this speaker, read this book, read that book, keep reading, keep learning, keep, and then eventually, boom, out pops a disciple. That's not what Jesus did. Jesus said, okay, guys, you've learned, you've watched, now go. Do what you've seen me doing. Teach what you've heard me teaching. And if we understand the relationship between a disciple and a rabbi, this is exactly what we would expect to happen. Because a rabbi and his disciples, the disciples were there to take a rabbi's message further than he would have taken it, to distribute it widely and also to distribute it beyond his death and to take it and to continue the message he shared. A rabbi without disciples is like a teacher without students. It doesn't exist. This is exactly what a rabbi's students would do. And teacher, and Jesus was the greatest rabbi teacher ever. And he would, they would take the message. And so now he says, go, do what you've seen me do, and teach what you've seen me teach. And it's the same thing with us. The only way you're going to make disciples is by telling people, hey, go and do stuff. And this is what 
we've been talking about the last three weeks. We've been saying, don't contract out the important work of spiritual growth to someone else. You have an opinion on the Bible, but have you gotten that opinion by reading the Bible yourself? Or do you just take, have you contracted that out and let someone else read the Bible and tell you what it says? You know, go experience it for yourself and then process that. Your prayer life. You know, many of us, we talked about that many of us are more comfortable asking someone else to pray. Hey, would you pray for me about this? But we don't pray about it ourselves. And we'll contract it out. You know, hey, would you pray for me about this? And then we just go on with our life. But the reality is, you go do it. Go spend time. Go spend time worshiping God, talking to God, asking him for what you want, confessing your sins to him, and, and worshiping him and finding, you know, who he, listening to his voice. You go pray. Do the work yourself. Go experience it. We talked last week about money. What story do you want your money to tell about you? You give. You be generous. You trust God for faithfulness. You experience what God wants to do in your life by trusting him with your money. This is how you grow. It's not all from reading books. It's not all from knowledge. We have to have experiences. So Jesus says, go out, preach. Go heal people. Jesus says the same thing to you. Go, go pray. You know, your, your friend's sick. Go pray that they will be healed. Take t you, you got a message. You got a friend that needs Jesus. You go share Jesus with them. Go do it. Experience. It's not just knowledge. It's knowledge. And the second ingredient is important is to have experiences in order to see and continue to grow. So give experiences. You see, Luke chapter 9, uh, not surprisingly, comes right after Luke chapter 8. And at the end of Luke chapter 8, you see Jesus doing two things. He's just cast a demon out of a man and he's just healed a woman and raised a girl from the dead. And right after that, he says, guys, Go heal. Go preach. Go do what you have seen me do. Carry, carry that out. And so the second ingredient is to give experiences. The third ingredient, make a disciple. Knowledge is important. Give knowledge. Experiences are important. Give experiences. The third, uh, the third one is this. Offer coaching. And you say, Pastor, that doesn't sound like a very biblical word. I think you're making that one up. I, the concept, though, the word may not be in there, but trust me, the concept is. The third one is offer coaching. And here's, here, here's the deal. Jesus sent out these 12. And you say, well, where is that? How do you know this is what happened? Jesus sent out these 12 in Luke chapter 9. But if you go, and if you go back to Luke chapter 9, and right after, and you jump down to verse 10. Luke chapter 9, verse 10, it says this. On their return, the apostles told him all they had done, and he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured all those who had healing. So here's, here's what happens. The 12 go out. They do exactly what Jesus said. They go and preach. They go and heal, and then they come back, and they, say, they give a report to Jesus, and Jesus says, all right, guys, come on, we're going to go away, just us. We're going to go to a quiet place, and we're going to go and talk, just us. And I would love to be able to tell you, okay, you know, then Jesus coached them and gave them information, but I can't because the crowd interrupted him. And I don't know what he would have said to him in that moment, but I do know what he said in a very similar moment if you flip over to Luke chapter 10. 
Luke chapter 10, he has done the very same thing. He has sent out this time 72 people. Go do what I told you to do. Go do what I've done. Go say what I've said. Preach and heal and go do this. And then the 72 come back. Same thing. And they say, you know, they tell Jesus what they did. And this is what happens in Luke chapter 10, verse 17. It says, the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions over all the powers of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. But rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So what's going on here? What's going on here? What's going on here is that Jesus, after the experience, then he coaches them. So they come back and they are all excited. They are all hyped up. They are, they are all lit up talking about, look, Jesus, you won't believe what happened. We went out and demons obeyed us. Like, we cast them out. Like, we told them where to go. And they went. And they listened to us. And they're all excited. And Jesus responds, guys, guys. And he, he tells them this thing, you know, I've seen Satan fall from heaven and we don't know exactly. Does that mean, like, in the moment they were talking? Or does that mean when Satan originally fell? We don't know exactly what Jesus is talking about. What we know is Jesus is essentially saying, look, I've seen God's power over Satan and the enemy. And it is incredible. Like, and you guys have all this power and God has blessed you with it and it's amazing. But then he corrects him. But then he says, well, wait, guys, but, but, nevertheless, don't get so jacked up about this stuff that you really forget what's most important and what's most important is your name is written in heaven. And he coaches them. He says, look, yeah, this is important. This is important and, and, it's, and it's great and it's awesome and it's an incredible display of power of God. But don't lose sight of what's most important. So what is he doing? They've had an experience. They went out and did, you know, responded uh, to his teaching. They went out and did it. They had an experience and now Jesus brings them in. And says, okay, let me help you process that experience. Let me help you put it in the right perspective. So that, and that's how you make disciples. And you see this happen again and again and again through Jesus. And he does this for three years with 12 guys. It's not a decision comes and then that's the end of it. And this coaching, I think, is a really important part of it. You know, the importance of a coach, you know, we have in so many other places in our lives to correct us, to bring adjustments. You know, even at the, it, what's interesting to me is the further you get in a profession or the better you get at something, the less, uh, greater, what's the right word here, ratio of coach to participant, right? All right, that didn't explain it. Well, let me explain it. You're in Little League, you got one coach for 20 players, you get to, you know, the major leagues or football, you get to Tom Brady's level, you have multiple coaches for one player. The better you are at something, the more coaching you get for it. And when we come to Christ, we also need people to be coaching us. We need people in our lives to be directing us, to help us process things. And we need to be doing that for others. And so Jesus did that for his disciples, Constantly helping them process information 
that they have experienced and become greater disciples. And so what's that look like? You say, okay, yeah, that, that's great for you. What's that look like? I think it might, um, it might look like this. That somebody comes and they make a decision to follow Jesus and you have the privilege of being there. You have the privilege of being a part of it. You have the privilege of seeing that happen. And so you impart knowledge to them and they go out and they try and live their life for Jesus. And they come back to you and they have questions, you know. And maybe they come back at first and they're like, hey, I'm following Jesus. My life is great. Everything's great. Everything's going for me. My life was a mess before, but now everything is perfect and thank you for sharing Jesus with me. And, uh, and you say, that's great. Let's continue talking because you know it's not going to stay like that, right? And so maybe they come back a little while later and they say, hey, I lost my job. What gives? I'm following Jesus. I'm doing everything I'm supposed to do. I'm doing everything you told me to do and now I lost my job. What gives? And you, Coach Christian, you come alongside them and you say, well, let's talk about that. Jesus was crucified on a cross and his followers suffered and at one point he actually said that we'll all experience persecution. And so experiencing difficulty is not something that's completely avoided when you're a Christian. And so things on earth are a little messed up. Now get back in the game. Go, go live your life. Oh, okay. And then they come back again. Wait a second. Someone I love is sick and they're going to die and I prayed for them and they didn't get healed. What gives? And you say, Coach Christian, all right, well, let's talk about that. Why does God heal people? Why do we see healings in Scripture? Why is it that some people, sometimes people aren't healed? What could be going on there? Why is it that sometimes we pray prayers and God doesn't answer them in the way that we would expect or want him to answer them? Oh, okay. All right, now go get back in the game. And then they come back to you. Hey, wait a second. People in my family are not happy that I'm a Christian. They think I'm crazy. What gives? Well, you're in good company. Uh, Jesus, at one point, his family thought he was crazy. And there are people that aren't going to be that excited or happy about the fact that you're following Jesus. And that happens sometimes. And that's okay. Okay, go get back in the game. Hey, I saw these people on TV, they call themselves Christians, and they were acting, you know, in a strange and hateful way, or I saw this pastor, and he's supposed to be following Christ, uh, but he stole money from the church and cheated on his wife. What gives? Okay, let's talk about that. Truth is that uh, we live in a fallen world. People are sinners and make decisions that aren't in line with God, even people that call themselves Christians, and you need to keep your eyes on Jesus and make sure you're following him and not people. Oh, okay. You know, get back in the game. Hey, I shared Jesus with someone, and they raised this question I couldn't answer. What gives? All right, well, let's talk about that. Let's go search the scriptures and try and find an answer for that, and so you can bring that back to your friend. Hey, I told someone about Jesus, and they made a decision to follow him, and now they have all these questions. What gives? Well, why don't you go talk to them? And why don't you do with them what I have been doing with you this whole time? And it's at that point that someone, that you have made a disciple. Because the truth is, you have not made a disciple 
until that person is making disciples. A disciple of Jesus is someone who makes disciples. And that is our goal. Success in the kingdom of God is not measured in decisions. It's measured one disciple at a time. And the way you get from the promise of every family being blessed to the picture of all nations being present is through the process of making disciples. And disciple making happens one person at a time, life on life, regular, constant, intentional interaction with one disciple with another. That's how it happens. That's how it's always happened. All these technologies are great. We'll use them. We'll take advantage of them to get the message out. What they're not great at is getting and making disciples. Discipleship happens in small groups, one-on-one, and this is the most important work we've been called to. This, this is not a great format for discipleship. This is not where discipleship happens. This is a great format for that first step, for getting knowledge out, for helping people learn. This is a great format for that. This is a poor format for discipleship. And so my question to you is, where is discipleship happening in your life? Where are these three ingredients happening in your life? Who's discipling you and who are you discipling? Who is it that is discipling you? Because maybe you say, well, I can't disciple someone. I don't know enough. I don't understand enough. I haven't had enough uh, experience. Well, that's fine. Then who's discipling you so you can get to that place? And if you've been following Jesus and you're a disciple, then who are you discipling? Who are you helping with their knowledge? Who are you helping with their experience? And who are you help coaching, talking with, discipling? so that they will themselves become a disciple of Jesus. Because success in the kingdom of God is measured one disciple at a time. And that is how the picture of every nation and every tribe and every people group under heaven present will happen and take place. And so let's be the kind of church, if we're gonna do the work that God has called us to in 2018, that is making disciples of people for God and for his glory. Would you pray with me? As we come to this time of prayer this morning, it occurs to me that maybe there are some in here that are hearing this message and uh, you would say that you're not even sure if you are a disciple of Jesus. that uh, perhaps you've made a decision or maybe you haven't and you're not sure that if you're a disciple of his. It's not hard to understand and to have assurance of that. Um, Jesus hasn't made it hard. Scriptures say if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, that your sins are forgiven and that you're saved from the penalty of those sins. It's not hard. He hasn't made it difficult. And you can easily know that you are a Christian by making that decision and starting that path of discipleship. And so if you're here this morning and you've never taken that step, I would encourage you this morning to take that step in your own place, in your own heart, in your own 
chair right there today to tell Jesus that you want to become his follower, to tell him that you want to accept the offer that he gives you of forgiveness and salvation through faith in him. That you would this morning where you are, let him know that you want him to be the Lord of your life, to lead you, to guide you all the days of your life. Because the path of discipleship starts with that place of decision. And that decision is one that you and you alone can make. That you will choose to follow him, to organize your life around him, to build your life around him and his purposes for your life. If that's where you are this morning, I'll just give you a moment of sacred space to talk to God and tell him you desire to follow him and to have him as the Lord and leader in your life. Father, as we come before you this morning, there are many in this room who have followed Christ for many years or maybe just started following, but we would call ourselves Christians. And yet, Lord, we have often walked under a misunderstanding that we can somehow be a Christian without being a disciple. That it's somehow just a decision that we make. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us and guide us and show us those places in our life where we are not living as disciples of you, whether intentionally or unintentionally, places we have not yielded to you. And this morning that we would take that time to completely commit ourselves to you. And Lord, I pray, Lord, for the men and women in this room, Lord, that you would not only make us disciples, Lord, but that you would fully make us disciples and that we would become disciple makers. Even now, as men and women who love you are sitting here, I'd ask that you would bring names to our hearts and our minds. Someone that you have strategically placed in our life that we may have overlooked or just moved on from or just not paid enough attention to who you have strategically placed in our life so that we might help them grow in their relationship with you. Lord, I pray that you would bring those names to our minds and our hearts even now. Places, the people, that you have put in our lives to do that, that none of us would forsake our duty of helping to grow that picture of heaven through the making of disciples. Lord, lead us in this way. In Jesus' name, amen.